Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our Design Emergency Podcast that Alice Rostorn and I founded in 2020 to discuss what architects and designers can do to make the world a better place, to help us move forward as a society and as a species together with all other species and societies. Today, we're welcoming Omar Degan, a Somali architect, founder and principal of DO Architecture Group, and that's a firm that operates across many different regions in the world, uh, starting from the Horn of Africa, which I would like to remind our Geography Challenge friends is a peninsula and geopolitical region in East Africa that comprises Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia, Djibouti, and parts of Kenya, Sudan, South Sudan, and Uganda. Um, and then also in the USA and in my native Italy. Actually, we're conducting the interview today in English, but it's kind of frustrating because our Italian conversation is very bright and sprightly. Omar and his team specialize in emergency architecture, in post-conflict reconstruction, and in cultural diversity. So the firm's core principles lie in creating architectural solutions that are culturally, historically, and also climatically relevant to the location where they're working. And they try to address social problems worldwide by starting very locally. And through his work, Omar seeks to develop innovative approaches to celebrate the cultural identity of communities and to use architecture to high ambition, but really necessary right now and always to promote peace, development and a more sustainable future. So welcome, Omar. Thank you so much, Paula, for having me. I'm really happy to discuss with you further. Yeah, well, we have a lot to discuss. So born and raised in Italy and then opening your outlook to the rest of the world, starting with the Horn of Africa. So what inspired you to become an architect? I have to re-question to myself what was the, uh, the, the initial uh, step, right? And I think that, so I actually born and raised in Italy and, and bred over there. And I think that um, I've been indirectly brainwashed by, by the whole country <laughs> and, and, and the fact that, you know, art, art and beauty is always like few steps. Uh, away from you uh, but I think that what actually changed uh, my direction in life was um, was when I was going with uh, with my grandma and we were looking for uh, for a new property and then we started to go uh, to see all these properties around constantly which wasn't really that funny but um, she tried to get me involved with the, um, you know, with the idea that I was part of the process, right? And, and, and I'll, I'll never forget that there was this, 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 this architect, um, that she was, she was very young and, and she was discussing with us uh, options and she was uh, so nice to involve me and ask me, oh, which color do you prefer? Do you prefer these styles? Do you like this? So I think that that uh, somehow clicked with me on the fact that, that oh, you know, I, uh, seems like a good job. Seems like um, a good place to start and then uh, make money, which was the the mistake, uh, <laughs> I guess. But um, because you never did. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> that, that, that that was important thing. No, but that's nice that you chose architecture because it was a job that I would say is one of the lucky things about Italy that people are very aware that being a designer or an architect is a possibility. I, I think that this is actually the main point because what I've noticed is um, it's way easier to then have a dialogue with either the clients, the people, the community where they are aware of the surrounding 
And I think that this is a very uh, unique Italian thing, I'll, I'll probably say. Um, and, and, you know, there is a, a uh, very way proud more to. attachment. <laughs> yeah, there's way more attachment to the, um, you know, to the surrounding, to, 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 to the built environment itself. And, and, and uh, probably also way more respect from the profession. And, and when did you decide that you needed to focus on reconstruction and on fragile context and uh, vulnerable communities? How did that happen? Well, you see, I think that um, I have to, to give a shout out to some of my professors at the university. And uh, so I attended the Polytechnic of Torino. And uh, um, what actually really changed was the fact that my university uh, had a center for um, developing nations and emergency, which was um, really important, especially they used to have a, a PhD courses. They used to send students um, in the field everywhere from you know, South Asia, Africa, South America, um, working with international organizations. And I was lucky enough that at the second year of my career, academic career, um, I ended up in a, in a design studio with two professors um, that they were focused entirely on, on Africa, uh, particularly on West Africa. So they used to work in Burkina Faso. And they gave our students the opportunity to, um, to design buildings that uh, were located in the region. So experience a bit of, uh, um, of that infrastructural system, basically. Let's make our profession matter in the world, I understand. And um, you talk a lot about fragility, which is a concept that now has become a concrete concept used by economists, used by geopolitical experts. Can you define for us the concept of, of fragility and why it is important for architects and designers to take it into consideration in today's world? Yeah, I think that we can uh, define the fragility of of the cities particularly as the inability of uh, city-based institutions to deliver um, basic conditions of livability. So um, in everything from increasing, you know, when we observe uh, an increase in criminality, uh, inequality, lack of basic services, access to hospitals, but also uh, infra infrastructural system related to uh, food delivery, and, and of course, exposure to climate uh, disaster and uh, uh, issues related to that. So it's, uh, it's quite a phenomenon that now, uh, uh, the, I mean, it, it has been always present in the history of humankind. So we always observe disaster. There, there have been historical disasters uh, ev every single time in, in the history of, of, of us. But um, what is happening now is that with the, the growth in population that is exponential, especially in you know in third world countries, and this um, movement, massive movement of people from uh, rural to more urban areas around the world, that expose cities to the bigger threat of, of fragility, right? And, and and this is extremely important with the climate change crisis too, of course. Of course, because basically it's the infrastructure that is becoming fragile and, and that is like giving way to other forces that make it more and more vulnerable. So I'm thinking fragility, insecurity, uh, vulnerability. What can an architect do? Can, can you give us some examples of the work that you have accomplished to strengthen this fabric? 
Well, I, I do think that w- what is important is to kind of reconsider the um, the role itself of, of, of an architect and, and, and redefine for uh, this new world what is the profession of architect and how we should approach to the profession itself. Because I think that... Um, you know, if we're not adjust in that sense, then we are not able to face the challenges that the world is presenting to us. So I I try to um, move a bit away to the traditional approach uh, of architecture, which um, tend to be often a bit top down. So uh, in 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 my practice and with the communities that I work to and. And this has been done, um, you know, from from South America all the way to Asia and and then Africa, um, to to move a bit bottom up. So what I'm trying to do always is before even I'm starting to talk about design is simply to have uh, human interactions, uh, understand what is going on, you know, sitting and having a coffee, uh, hopefully a good one, and. And trying to, 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 to understand a bit what's the, what's the environment, what are the issues that the community and the people feel. Because I feel that often um, what architects see as an issue and what actually are the issues of the people that live in the place, that they're, they're not coming along. They're not the same thing. And can you give us some examples of works that you have actually accomplished with this kind of uh, a bottom-up uh, approach? Yeah, so... Um, in, in, in the Horn of Africa, uh, particularly, um, so one of the main um, projects, one of the initial projects that, are, that I've been using in that sense was, um, was a restaurant, uh, a cafe, in, in a central area of, of the capital city of Somalia, Mogadishu, uh, uh, in a neighborhood that faced all the fragile challenges possible. So everything from, uh, you know, insecurity, uh, lack of uh, political presence and institutional presence, um, an area where, you know, it was booming uh, from, a, from a building point of view, but uh, didn't really have um, a direction. So it was more um, buildings related to, you know, just build it up, having an economy and that's it, right? So the client that I had, which uh, that make a lot of difference having a good client, has a vision too. And he wanted to create uh, something, he was Canadian, uh, he wanted to, to, to have a, a building that could have inspired people somehow. And it is like, from, from that idea of inspiring that I started to interrogate myself, it's like, okay, how do you inspire people in, in, in context that recover from conflict? So... The main thing was for me to find a way to recreate the sense of belonging. And the sense of belonging is the main thing that uh, usually conflict and disaster take away from communities. So how do you rebuild the sense of belonging in this fragile context? Well, um, the main thing to do so is to find something that is in the memory of the people, that the people can recognize as their own. And how did I do that? I did, I use, I use the traditional uh, fabric in, 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 that, in that space. So the only thing that for me was uh, recognizable for everyone, every Somali from, you know, local Somali from diaspora abroad and, and internationally was the fabric that they always use tradition for, you know, weddings or cel- cultural celebrations. So 
I put it together, fabric that I use for coverage, pillows, and all of that, um, together with portraits of uh, vintage Somalia, but at the same time creating this declaration of, uh, of, of some sort of sense of nostalgia. Because Mogadishu was once known as the white pearl of the Indian Ocean and was, per- was known as the white pearl of the Indian Ocean because of the white buildings, the beautiful palm trees, and the blue of the ocean. So what I did was to incorporate some of this element. The building is, um, you know, white in the walls. I brought in uh, vegetation. So there are like these this spaces that are very, very green. I brought back these fabrics. So all of this kind of made the people feel that the place was their own. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's, that's fantastic. It reminds me of how Somalia was before. And, and, and even when people saw the pictures later on, um, in, in, in other places around the world, they, they, they found that they could have recognized Somalia. And, and in conclusion of this, I just want to add that what is extremely important when we talk about the sense of belonging is that because when you are being surrounded by destructions for years, uh, it's really hard to impose any sort of architecture. So what you want to do is to build up something that the people can incorporate in their daily life so then they protect indirectly the, the infrastructural system because they recognize as their own, which is different from uh, imposing. And, and, and we see that even in neighborhood or in the Western world. It's almost like an act of uh, mending the fabric, really almost literally. And um, this idea of nostalgia, this idea of belonging, and also of dignity through a sign of respect, beauty as a sign of respect towards the population, is something that you are trying to build on to revise the handbook of the United Nations um, guidelines, you know, the, the, the United Nations guidelines in situations of emergency. And it's really fascinating to see what the steps you have in this handbook are. If you don't mind, I'm going to go through some of them and ask you to elaborate on them further. So you start with the need, it's a process, right? So the need for an overview. And you say that the most important thing to do is to try and understand the context, the background, the contemporary issue of the place. But also you talk about the cultural framework. Can you explain what the cultural framework is in the context of a community that's been wounded and uh, made highly insecure by conflict? Yeah, so... um so f- first of all, I think that uh, what, one important thing to say is that um, beauty is a right for everyone. So everyone has the right to, to, to have uh, beauty around that. And it can be like natural beauty or infrastructural, but that is literally something that, um, you know, scientifically proven impact your emotions, your mental health, you know, in uh, uh, your well-being. So there is a, a, a huge responsibility in imposing anything. Uh, especially for us, this, we are architects, way more when we are in fragile context. But um, I think that, uh, so my base of this, uh, this topic related to culture, it comes back to um, the UNESCO Declaration of Cultural Identity. So in, in, when, when, when the UNESCO approved the Universal Declaration of Cultural Identity, they basically state that cultural diversity, as much as biodiversity, should be protected 
and preserve for the present and future generations. And, and that was my starting point because it's like, okay, but what is the physical representation of, of, of our diversities? We travel around the cities and, you know, uh, Rome is different from Paris, that is different from Shanghai, that is different from Beirut and, 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 and Mogadishu. So in that, I found the most important strategy to develop, uh, to develop like architecture. And, and way more important when you're talking about designing for emergency, for displaced community, community affected by conflict. So when I say that you need to understand the social background and the cultural background, you need to understand where is the diversity of these people? How do they live differently? How do they engage with the space different? How do they engage with each other? I'm against the standardization of things. I think we can standardize certain things, but they need to be certain points that cannot be standard. You know, like community are different and, and you know, the heritage is different. The language is different. So I remember that in 2002, I was working on an exhibition about design and safety and um, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in, in terms of shelter said that everything begins with the UNHCR TARP. But then the next step is a door. And the step at which you can really give some dignity to people is if you help them also integrate their culture. So I hear you. So this was the first step in the handbook, the idea, the overview of the historical cultural background of the region that's uh, under emergency, the displaced people and the crisis. And then you move to the, the uh, area of research. And in this area of research, there is this idea of belonging and nostalgia. So basically, am I right to think that you take what you have learned from the cultural framework and you transform it into objects and actual buildings? So you understand what the community needs? Yeah, because I also part like, I mean, it, it seems almost uh, it's, it's fascinating for me sometimes that we don't even consider that. But at the end of the day, um, no one wants to leave his own home. It doesn't really matter where you are at, right? So um, no one is happy to leave. You know, uh, you, you can migrate for, um, for educational reasons, economical reasons, and then later on for everything related to conflict, to climate change, displacement. But like the main point is that no one is really happy to leave, you know, the place where, where they belong. So one thing that I, that I study and then I find out and, and you know, each one of us does, wherever you go and get where, you either bring something that is, uh, you know, from your home or as soon as you go, you're looking for the restaurant that it reminds you home. So, um, and this extends for any level of, of the population. So it doesn't matter if you are, um, you know, a middle-class person traveling and, you know, and working away or um, you are, uh, a refugee that is forcedly displaced for their home country, right? They're trying to bring something, they remember them, where they come from. So, and this concept, for me, needed to be translated into architecture. And how you translate that to architecture is the complicated part of it. Well, it's the next step, right? Uh, from overview to research and then to design. And in the different points that you make in the handbook about design, you 
uh, come up with two that are two. I mean, that it's more than two, but it's particularly poignant and it seems to be something that you have in common with so many architects in many parts of the world that are trying to make a difference. And that's the importance of being really local, of involving the community, understanding local societal structures, and also using local resources and uh, expertise, right? Understanding what kind of, ma of materials and construction processes are already part of the material culture of the region. So can you talk more about this point, these points, and maybe give us some examples. I think that, I mean, uh, as architects, we, we are decision makers. At one point in the process, we, we have to take the decision to, you know, uh, either building a wall in here or not building a wall or having an opening in here or not having an opening. Um, but I'm a firm believer that these decisions, they need to be guided uh, by by a background knowledge, you know, the more you're knowledgeable about that, the better it is. So involving the community, right, involving experts, they can tell you, they lived maybe there for like three, four generations, and tell you, look, I'm doing this because I have this problem from the wind or from the water or I need light or I need to bring out the smog of my cooking. So they tell you why they did that. They may not have uh, the appropriate architecture solutions, right? But they are very aware about the challenging the, the, the challenges that they face. So, um, what I tried to do was to develop that, and then it's like you know, uh, uh, kind of receive everything. So in a phase, I always say like you know, talking less and listen more, but then take firm decisions and to, to move forward in the process. And um, when we're talking about this this handbook, and, and one of the main challenges that I had is was exactly when I I, des I designed a recently a project in in the outskirts of Mogadishu, so around fourteen kilometers on the on the outskirts of Mogadishu, Somalia, and and it was um, so the objective was to extend an hospital and add an and change the uh, current uh, maternity ward that was serving the area. So these, uh, um, these projects, uh, especially in the humanitarian framework and when you work with international organizations, they're always, uh, you always get provided with guidelines. Guidelines that um, despite having the, uh, the stamp of being, you know, locally, right? So there is the chapter of Somalia, chapter of, you know, Yemen, chapter of Uganda. Uh, they're pretty much the same in, in, in the outcome, in the architectural outcome. So there is a big standardization in that sense. So what I've been, what happened to me is that I've been provided with these guidelines, in this case um, from UNICEF, on how to design uh, health facilities. And when I started, um, when I started to look through, I, I thought that it was, um, incredibly um, distressing for me to see that we were designing actually, you know, a permanent structure. So made by concrete blocks, you know, with all the, 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 the idea to, to make something durable, but the facility itself, according to the guidelines, wasn't providing any upgrade in the, in the building infrastructure. So and I think that is the most uh, beautiful challenge of an architect, right? So we have always guidelines and we always trying to play around with that. It doesn't matter if it's a code of the city or a legislation. So we move a bit around that. So what I did with this maternity ward was to 
use the guidelines, but make trying to um, make a building that was architecturally responding to the needs. For example, the guidelines they tell you, uh, they suggest you indirectly how the roof should be, but they don't enforce that. They tell you, hey, the water needs to go down, but they don't tell you how is the shape of the roof. So they tell you there is the need of opening that for, for ventilations, but they don't tell you how the opening they need to be designed. They give you an image and then people tend to use that. So my job, I try to retranslate and completely redesign that. And I think that that was the, um, the project that gave me the, this strong uh, input of working towards um, uh, the handbook on designing an emergency in the home. Super interesting because um, there is definitely the opportunity to extrapolate local learnings, lessons learned to an international context. So what would you say that you, you have learned in the Horn of Africa and in Somalia in particular? If you were to give us like three lessons that you've learned that you will apply and that you will recommend that other architects apply. Well, first thing first is um, architects work for the people and that's our mission. So I, I believe I believe that, uh, you know, especially in these challenging times, we have the duty to act in the protection, in the support of community development, in, uh, you know, rising awareness, but we need to provide solutions to problems and not create additional problems. And I think that is a, that's a very important thing for me. And the second is, Design do matter, and architecture do matter. And I always, you know, um, now I'm, I'm, I'm teaching too, but I always tell to the people that I encounter, especially the ones that are not uh, in the field of architecture, is you don't understand how important the built environment, design and architecture is until they take it away from you. If I'm starting to remove the beautiful square, the beautiful museums, the galleries, the schools that are designed well, then you start to understand that architecture is valuable. And our work is probably one of the most important works because I think it's shocking, but we need to think that, and this is part of this, this point, that we spend around 83, 85% of our lives within buildings. So that should be already enough to, for you to demand a good thing. And the other lesson, that, the third lesson that I learned, uh, which is equally important for me, is that they shouldn't be second-class clients for architects. It shouldn't be the focus of architects privilege only the people that can actually afford it. The focus of architecture shouldn't be only to work for the 1% of the population. And, and we really own to, to the communities um, a service that is, that is good. Especially in these challenging times where, where the world is affected by instabilities, climate change, um, you know, economical struggle. So uh, now more than ever, um, I, I, I firmly believe that architecture is important. 
So beyond the handbook, which I know you're working on, you're also about to launch a new consultancy. Can you tell us about the Fragility Lab, please? The Fragility Lab, it, it, it was an idea that uh, grew with me for years, but they, but didn't have uh, an answer to that. So the Fragility Lab aimed to support organizations, communities, administrations, to deal with issues of fragility within cities, neighborhood, regions, and bridge the gap that there is between the community, the built environment, and the administrators. So with Fragility Lab, we guide you to understand how to correctly approach when you face a community that has challenges. And it doesn't matter if we are in the coast of Maryland, that is affected by climate change and gentrification, or in Islam in South America. In fact, um, I've been working in, in Argentina with Islam years ago, and the process of developing the Islam was exactly the same that I've been using in Somalia, that is the same that I'm using now in Maryland. So with Fragility Lab, I'm trying to respond to that worldwide need of facing these, um, these complex challenges that, uh, that the built environment is, is facing and, and community are facing. So providing, moving my expertise in the Horn and around the world at the service of the large community. Countering vulnerability with pride, countering fragility with a sense of belonging, and countering emergency with a sense of safety and security within one's community, locally and then extrapolated globally. Today we've heard from Omar Degan, Somali architect, peripatetic, whose company, DO Architecture, is spread all over the world, and so is his mind. It was wonderful to hear about the way in which architecture can actually help us build a stronger world. So thank you very much, Omar, for being with us. Thanks so much, Paola, for having me. I really appreciate that. Thanks. Today we heard from Omar, and tomorrow, who knows? Join us again for our next episode of the Design Emergency Podcast. And thank you so much for listening today.